Please keep your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 6. Look at the second part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 now. A number of us are very active in Hobart fighting against the, the social issues that our Labor Greens government is trying to, to bring into our state and that's, as you know, that's been a, a very... The, the social issues have been coming thick and fast and there's, it's extremely difficult to keep a track and to keep up with all the, the new legislation that, that is coming. And I know that there are people up here as well who are very active with that. And those of us who heard Larry Giddings give an apology last year for forced adoptions were, couldn't help think that there was a, a deep strain of hypocrisy in the apology because the apology was not just to mothers whose children were taken from them, the apology is also to, to children who were unnecessarily taken away from their natural parents. And it seemed hypocritical to many of us because at the very same time that she is apologising to children for taking them away from their natural parents, she's pushing legislation to redefine marriage which will normalise the taking away of children from their natural parents. And so that we couldn't help, um, I think many of us here couldn't help be a bit suspicious about the tears that were shed and the the, the bleeding hearts and so on. We thought that there was hypocrisy there. We don't like hypocrisy, do we? And those outside of the church don't like hypocrisy. And how many times has, has someone said to you, well, I know you want me to come to church, I know you want me to become a Christian, but all the Christians I know are hypocrites. They say one thing and they do another. Now, what should be the reply to such a person? Well, if the church is full of hypocrites, one more won't make a difference. You may as well, you may as well come along. Now, it's not just those of us in the church who hate hypocrisy. It's not those, just those outside of the church. But what we see here in chapter 6 is Jesus taking the sledgehammer to hypocrisy. And most of you would know that the word hypocrisy, it comes from a Greek word, hypocrites, and an hypocrites was a play actor. And you'll be familiar with the, the Greek masks that the, the play actors wore because the amphitheatres in which the, the theatres were produced were, were very vast and so they wore, the actors wore grotesque masks which exaggerated the expression on the face. And so an actor uh, who is in a happy state will have a, a big happy mask and an actor who's angry or upset will have a big sad mask. You know the masks I'm talking about, they're the symbol of the theatre. And so there might be an actor on stage whose uh, dog died that morning and whose house is being repossessed and, but the, he's wearing the happy mask. You know, inside he's very upset and sad but on the outside, he looks happy and vice versa. So that's an hypocrites. That's what a, a hypocrite is. It's a play actor. They, what they present is very different to what is really going on in their hearts. And here in chapter 6, Jesus exposes hypocrisy. And he begins by saying, 
Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before people, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And Jesus will now expose hypocrisy among the admired religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, in relation to three areas of their religious devotion, in relation to their giving, their prayer and their fasting, and also in their attitude towards money. Now I hope no one's here this afternoon just to hear bad things said about Pharisees. It's always kind of nice, isn't it, to hear bad things being spoken about other people. It gives us a perversely warm feeling inside to to hear about other people being run down. But I hope none of us are here just for that. I hope that we will take what Jesus says to the Pharisees and will hold it up like a mirror to ourselves to see what it says about ourselves. I'm sure by the end of this you'll agree that Jesus is not just talking to religious leaders of Israel who lived 2,000 years ago. He's talking about me and he's talking about you. And let's pray that we'll be humble and hear what Jesus is saying to us this afternoon. Jesus, we confess uh, a very thick layer of pride that envelops our hearts and which makes it very difficult to really hear what you're saying and, and to see it. Please, in your love and grace, by the power of your spirit, cut away that barrier, rip away the shields, expose our hearts and minds before the searching words of our Lord. Amen. Well, the Pharisees, who were they? Well, of course, they were the religious leaders, the rabbis who were very prominent in Jesus' day. They had a very distinctive dress. Uh, They wore long tassels on their robes to indicate their importance and they wore phylacteries. And you can go online on eBay and... If you're really keen, you can buy a phylactery today. Phylacteries. And, and a set of phylacteries, is, it's a little box that, that goes on the, the right wrist and a little box that is strapped to the forehead and inside the little box is a, a portion of God's law. And the Pharisees wore those due to an over-literalistic reading of Deuteronomy 6 where God said, bind my law on your forehead and on your right hand. Uh, now what did God mean by that? Well, whenever, whatever you, whenever you think, you know, whatever you're thinking about, think, think through the, the lens of God's law. And, and whatever you do, the right hand is the doing hand. Whatever you do, do it in accordance with God's law. And the Pharisees thought, well, uh, what God really meant is to literally tie a piece of law to our foreheads and to our wrists. And so that's why they wore the phylacteries and that's why some Jewish leaders wear them to this day. Now the Pharisees were not priests, they were technically laymen, but they were highly learned in the Old Testament and it might surprise you, but most scholars today believe that they were quite, seen to be quite attractive people. They were quite attractive for their, their piety, their devotion and 
their, their sheer knowledge of God's word and they were respected and they were much more popular than the priests, put it that way. But they were also feared because the Pharisees, the rabbis, had the power of putting you out of the synagogue, uh, effectively excommunication, and that was a terrifying thing for any Jewish person to be put out of the synagogue, cut off from their religious community and from their family. Now, where did the Pharisees come from? Well, no one knows exactly, but the best theory is that it was a reform movement that grew up in the second century BC. And those of you who know a bit of history know that when Alexander the Great died, and Alexander was a Macedonian and he conquered uh, Greece and then he went east and he went all the way pretty much to India. And when he died in 323 BC, he carved up his empire amongst his four generals. And one of the generals, uh, Seleucid, his part of the empire was, was centred around Syria with its capital at Antioch. And one of his descendants in the second century was a king called Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he was the most notorious of these Seleucid kings. They were Greek kings, effectively ruling over Middle Eastern people. And Antiochus Epiphanes had a very high opinion of himself. In fact, Epiphanes means manifest God. <laughs> so that was the title he gave to himself, manifest God. And there was a bit of a rebellion amongst the Jewish people in Judea. And he put it down in a most cruel and brutal way. And 40,000 men, women and children, Jewish men, women and children were slaughtered. And another 40,000 men, women and children were packed off and sold into slavery. And then he, he banned um, Judaism, he banned the, the religion of the Old Testament, he had a temple of Zeus, uh, a statue of Zeus installed in the temple, and horror of horrors, the worst thing he could have done, was he had a pig brought into the temple and slaughtered on the, the Jewish altar. And you know that Jewish people, for Jewish people, the pig is the unclean animal. And so that desecrated the altar and the temple. And the, you've heard the phrase abomination of desolation. It's a phrase that occurs in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, in rabbinic writings. And many scholars say that the abomination of desolation was that, that event. Well, that was the, the key event that that refers to, the, the slaughter of the, the swine on the altar of God. And so here is this very cruel and brutal man and there was a reform movement that grew up in reaction to Antiochus Epiphanes. And the leaders, the best guess is that the leaders of that reform movement are get back to the Bible movement, get back to our roots, get back to the religion of the Old Testament, were what became the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were reforming leaders that were trying to bring their people back to the Bible back to the Old Testament. And that grew up in the, the second century BC. Now by the first century, by the time Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, uh, things had changed. That, that always happens, doesn't it, by the way? Look at the history of the church. It's a history of... Uh, it, it's judges, actually, played again and again and again. The, the church goes into a dive, then there's a reform movement, the church picks up again and then it starts to deteriorate and disintegrate 
until a new reformation is needed. And so by the time Jesus is saying these words, it looks as though this reform movement, which started so well in the second century, has degenerated into hypocrisy and play acting. And let's look at what Jesus says about the the religious devotion and worship of the Pharisees, who were still admired and respected and feared amongst the Jewish people. First of all, he talks about their giving. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites, the the play actors do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by men. And and I think, look, let's let's just imagine what Jesus is saying here, and I think it's quite hilarious. You know, here is Simon the Pharisee with his gift for the poor, and he's walking to the synagogue with his gift for the poor, and what does he do? He hires Carl on the trombone to go in front of him and to play the trombone uh, with a great fanfare so that people will see him and see what a, a kind and good and, and generous man he is. And so I, I, I think Jesus is, is hamming it up a bit here. I, I think it's, it's funny what he's saying here. So when you give to the needy, don't, don't announce it with trumpets or trombones like the play actors to be honoured by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their award in full. What does he mean? He means that they wanted applause, they get their applause. (laughs) They get their award. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. I don't know about you, but I know myself, and I know that when I do something that's a little bit generous, I'm very, very clever at finding sophisticated little ways of letting people know that I've done this little act of generosity. In fact, it's almost impossible not to do that. It would seem, there's a part of my mind that says it would be a great tragedy, a great calamity if, if people weren't to discover this little act of kindness and generosity that I've done. And so, yes, I laugh at the Pharisees and then I see my own heart. And the Pharisees wore robes and phylacteries and I don't. But my heart's the same. Because their problem wasn't that they were Pharisees, their problem was that they were fallen human beings like me. And then he talks about prayer. When you pray, do not be like the play actors, the hypocrites, for they love to stand, pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. And a couple of years ago I was at the Melbourne airport waiting for a flight back to Hobart and there was indeed a Jewish man, bearded, and he was wearing a prayer shawl, and he was wearing a phylactery on his wrist and on his forehead. I was, I was pleased to see a real phylactery. And, um, and, and he was praying uh, quite ostentatiously. You know, it was, he was there in front of everyone, and it, it looked as though he wanted to be seen. Um, and on the one hand, I admired his courage, and I admired the fact that he was praying and I wasn't, but it did remind me of, of what Jesus is saying here, that, 
that sometimes our prayer is not true prayer at all. It's, it's just a, a way of parading ourselves and our, our piety before people. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. They wanted applause. They'll get it. But when you pray, go into your room, literally your storeroom. It was the room in the house that didn't have windows. The pantry. Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So here Jesus exposes hypocritical prayer. And now he helps us, and he says, this then is how you should pray. And I think this is a bit of an excursus. his main theme here is to expose religious hypocrisy, but he, he presses the pause button here between verse 9 and 15 to talk about true prayer. If you want to know about prayer, then, then this is how to pray. And of course, this is the Lord's Prayer. And let's just pause likewise and, and hear what Jesus says about prayer. And first of all, he teaches us how to address God. And I think the way he teaches us to address God tackles two errors that we are prone to falling into. And you have heard people pray to God, uh, Almighty God, um, you are transcendent, um, effulgent, whatever that means, majestic, uh, utterly separated from me, Uh, it's like they're talking to someone in a a, a parallel universe, right? And they use King James language and they're they're talking about God as though he's a very, very, very long way away. And then on the other hand, you will have heard people pray in a way that almost, with an intimacy and a familiarity that almost, it, it jars on you because it sounds almost blasphemous. And I had a good friend and he used to pray to God. He used to address God this way. Hello, God. And uh, then he'd he'd go on. And it it always sort of irked me. Hello, God. It sort of... Because I appreciated that he felt that God was close to him, but there was no sense of... uh, didn't sound like respect to me. And and so aren't these words just magnificent and so helpful to us? Here's how to address God. Our Father in heaven. There's the intimacy. God is our Father. And in chapter 7, we're going to see what that means for our prayers. He's our Father. Where his sons, his daughters, he's adopted us. He loves us. He's close to us. He cherishes us. There's a sense of real intimacy and love there. Our Father. Our Father in heaven. He is holy, awesome, almighty and transcendent. Our Father in heaven. Those few words encapsulate the way we should relate to God and address God. There's intimacy and awe at the same time. 
And then what do we pray for? Our Father in heaven, give us today our daily bread. Well, that's often the way it sounds, doesn't it? After we address God, here's my shopping list. God, listen, here's all the things I need you to do for me. And our prayers are very uh, me-centred. But Jesus says, no, when you pray, we pray first of all for God. Hallowed be your name. May, that, that word hallowed, it means, it's related to the word holy. It means may God's name be sanctified, may it be set apart. May your name be set apart from all that is, that is common and worldly. May your name be set apart in the hearts of all people. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's the address, our Father in heaven, then six petitions, and the first three petitions are about God. And wouldn't you agree that this is a a thoroughly missionary prayer? Isn't it? This is is a prayer that, that looks out. It's a prayer that looks to the lost. Because the Christian looks to the lost. There we are in Hobart and Launceston, Devonport, La Trobe, wherever we are. And we look at our community and we see people who don't revere God. We see people who don't hallow the name of God. In fact, they use his name as a swear word. And they don't treasure the name of Jesus and fall down at the name of Jesus and worship the name of Jesus and that grieves us. It grieves us that there are people who don't know Jesus. It grieves us that there are people who are not worshipping Jesus because they were created to worship him. All people were created to love and to worship Christ. It breaks our hearts that there are people who aren't doing that. And so we, we come to God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed in Hobart. May your name be hallowed in Latrobe. May those people who, who right now ignore you or despise you use your name as a swear word. May there be a change of heart. Save them, rescue them, give them a love for Jesus. This is a, a missionary prayer. In the next two weeks we, we plan to, to start a, a prayer meeting once a week for an hour to pray specifically for outreach. Uh, at Cornerstone and Soul Church we feel that we're, we're, we really need to, to, to step out again. And we've got lots of ideas. You know, should we go here? Should we go there? Should we go there? And we, we think, no, let's just stop and let's just pray. And we'll see who comes to these prayer meetings too because they'll be the people who are probably likely to be a part of this or want to be a part of this. And our prayer is going to be exactly this. Father, may your name be hallowed in Glenorchy, if that's where you want us to go. May it be hallowed amongst the Chinese students of Utah, if that's where we go. Wherever we go, may people come to hallow the name of Jesus. May your kingdom come and reign in their hearts. May your will be done in their lives. And then, after praying for God, then we turn to our needs. Give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need for today, Father. And, and, and 
we pray for our needs, not our greeds, as some commentators put it. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this reminds us, doesn't it, that confession and repentance is not something that happens just at the start of one's Christian life. And we might think, well, there's the story, isn't there, of the, the old married couple and the wife who comes to her, her husband and says, look, you, you never tell me that you love me anymore. And, and what does he say to her? He says, well, on our wedding day, 45 years ago, I told you that I loved you. And if anything changes, I'll let you know. And that's his response. And we think, well, that's not acceptable. <laughs> if he really loves her, he needs to keep expressing it. He needs to keep telling her. And it wouldn't be right for the Christian to say, well, when I was converted 38 years ago, I, I knelt and prayed a prayer of confession and forgiveness. This is a daily prayer. Give us our daily bread. And a part of this daily prayer is daily confession, repentance, and pleading with God for his forgiveness. We can't help do that anyway, can we? When, when God shows us what's in our hearts, we can't help but to confess. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this reminds us that the Christian life is not lived out on a deck chair, on a cruise ship with pina colada in hand. That's not the Christian life, is it? Sailing on the cruise ship under the sunny skies of the Caribbean. Christians on a warship, a battleship. We're not tourists, we're we're soldiers. It's amazing, especially when you read Paul's letters, to see the kind of metaphors he uses for the Christian's life. The Christian is what? The Christian is a long-distance runner, fighting against fatigue. It's a long, hard race, and it takes discipline and guts and energy to get to the end. And what's, what else? The Christian is like a wrestler. It's a word Paul uses. The Christian is a wrestler. And there's this constant fight going on. There's this constant struggle going on. And people come to me as a pastor and they say, I'm really battling. I'm re- I feel like I'm failing in my Christian life. I feel like it's one step forward, three steps back. I, I'm really struggling here. I'm struggling to pray. I'm struggling to love my wife. I'm struggling to, to raise my children. I'm struggling to be a good witness in the classroom or on campus. I'm struggling. Now, I don't express this on the outside, but on the inside, yes. Yes. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the, it's the living fish that's swimming against the current, right? It's the dead fish which is just drifting along. The dead fish is relaxed. The living fish is fighting, struggling, pushing upstream. When someone comes to me and says, I'm struggling, yes, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the way the Bible describes the Christian life. If you're not struggling, you should be worried. If there's not a painful fight going on day by day, you should be worried. If you, if you don't feel that it's one step forward, three steps back, then be worried. 
because the Christian life is a fight against temptation. So Paul describes the Christian as a long-distance runner, as a, a wrestler. What's the other metaphor he uses? The Christian is a soldier, a soldier in the battle, in action. There's a powerful devil. There's a powerful world. And there's their own sinful nature. And the Christian life is hard and it's a fight. And we pray every day, lead us not into temptations. Deliver us. Save us from the evil one. And the world despises us because we believe in a devil. The world thinks it's a great joke that we believe in the devil. And the devil is very happy that people don't believe in him because he can just get on with his work quietly in the background. C.S. Lewis pointed that out, didn't he? In his screw tape letters. The devil loves it when people are either openly devoted to him on the one hand or they don't even know he's there. He's happy with either scenario because he can get on with his work either way. The Christian prays for daily deliverance. And of course, Jesus draws an iron link between our forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins, and the way we forgive the sins of others. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I think there's, there's a big confusion between forgiveness and reconciliation and someone has hurt us or they've hurt someone dear to us and they've shown no signs of repentance or change. Reconciliation is impossible in that situation. You can't be reconciled to someone who is hurting you and who doesn't know they're hurting you or who knows it and refuses to stop hurting you. You can't be reconciled to such a person. But you can hope the best for that person. You can pray for their salvation and their forgiveness. You can lovingly ask God to have mercy on them. You can pray that you will see them in heaven. You can't be reconciled to the unrepentant person, but you can forgive them in that sense, can't you? Hope the best for them. Pray for their best. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If we expect God to forgive the long, the infinitely long catalogue of mistakes and errors and sins that we have committed, how can we not forgive those who have sinned against us? And maybe there's someone you need to forgive. And maybe there's someone that you need to, uh, tonight, kneel down beside your bed and say, God, I, I hate that person for what they did. And it stings. Uh, but will you please save them, change them, rescue them as you've rescued me and teach me to love them. That's something that maybe I need to do and people here need to do. So now Jesus has talked about giving and he's talked about prayer and now he talks about fasting. When you fast... Do not look sombre as the hypocrites do. And, and again, use your imagination here. I, I, I think what Jesus is saying is funny. 
they disfigure their faces. <laughs> I'm so hungry, I'm suffering here. Feel sorry for me, admire me because I'm fasting. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Do your daily grooming so that people won't know any different. So that it will be obvious to men, not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so here Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of, of the Pharisees in their giving and their prayer and their fasting. And now he will expose their hypocrisy with money. And we know that the Pharisees loved money because uh, Luke tells us in his Gospel, in Luke 16, in a parallel passage, Jesus said, No, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then there's a comment. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And so here Jesus puts the the scalpel into the hearts of the Pharisees to show them that although outwardly they look pious and religious and devoted, inside there was a, a love for money and a love for the things of the world. And here he tackles that in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It not only is it wrong to have your treasure in your heart, uh, in your heart to treasure the things of the world, not only is that to make an idol, it's also silly. It's foolish because you are treasuring things that ultimately deteriorate and things that will pass away and be destroyed. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. The moths don't make it to heaven and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And now Jesus says something very difficult and the the scholars and the commentators uh, find this extremely difficult to interpret, but it seems to fit in with what he's just said. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. And it makes much more sense if we go with the original. If your eyes are single, is what Jesus actually said. If your eyes are single, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, if you are looking at one thing, that's the way to go, look at one thing. But if your eyes are bad, if they're divided looking at two things, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So Jesus is saying, we shouldn't be looking at two things. We shouldn't have one eye on heaven and one eye on money. That's going to bring us into the realm of darkness. And now he drives it home with a, a third way of saying the same thing. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And what a challenge that is to us. Because we've tried so hard to do that, haven't we? We're always trying to find a way of loving God and 
money and the things of this world. And Jesus says, you can't. Your heart will always gravitate to one over the other. You can't try to love God and money. It will just be loving money. It will just be loving the things of this world, the things that will ultimately be destroyed. We can't do it. And the Pharisees, who were, uh, according to Luke, famous for their love of money, this was a, a real challenge for them, and it's a real challenge for us. And we finish out chapter 6 with the right attitude towards the things of this world. Here Jesus teaches us the right attitude. And there's a three-word refrain that appears three times in Matthew 6, verse 25 to 34. What is that? What are the three words that Jesus says three times? Do not worry. Do not worry. So in relation to money and the things of this world, he is fundamentally saying, don't let your mind be consumed with these things. I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life, literally a single cubit to his height? That's that's what Jesus said. Who, by worrying, uh, can, can, can add to... Your, your height, your stature, and it, it was a metaphor for length of life. Who by worrying can add it any time to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow, they do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Second time he says it. So, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And verse 33 is a verse that I use continuously in pastoral counsel, particularly with young people as they are looking out at their life ahead and have a thousand decisions to make and are worried about career and are worried about friends and are worried about getting married and boyfriends and girlfriends. They're worried about everything. It's just young people, of course, isn't it? But this should be their, their constant prayer and verse. Seek first, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. That's the plan for life. We seek first Jesus and the kingdom and growing in godliness, growing in prayerfulness, growing in his word. We seek that first. First, 
Everything else is taken care of. I used to have, when I was a teenager, a living Bible. Does anyone remember the living Bible? I don't think Kurong sells it anymore, do they? It's probably a good thing. <laughs> but it was, the only, it was the only Bible we had in our house. And um, so when I was an older teenager, I was craving the Bible. I, hadn't, I stopped going to, to church when I was 16. When I worked out, I didn't have to go anymore. But mum and dad weren't going to make me go. And, but not long after that, I, I craved reading God's Word. And it was the only Bible I could find in the house. And at the start of it, it had where to go when you feel dot, dot, dot. You know, where to go when you feel angry. Where to go when you feel happy. Where to go when you're mourning. And the one I went to more than most often was where to go when you're worried. Where to go when you're worried. Because uh, you're at school and there's tests and exams and assignments and all the pressures of, of living as a teenager and, and it's a time of great worry. And I used to always go to, what does it say? I'm hungry, I need to know. What does it say to those who are worried? And it always took me to this verse. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, third time, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So here our Lord Jesus has held up the Pharisees to scorn. But as I said at the start, it would be a huge mistake for us to sit here in La Trobe on the Saturday afternoon and say those stupid Pharisees, those fools, those religious bigots, bigots and hypocrites. That would be a huge mistake because Jesus, again in his love, is exposing the festering abscess of sin in the hearts of all of us. He's driving us again back to poverty of spirit, back to mourning for our sin, back to spiritual humility, back to hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that we don't have and that only God can give. C.S. Lewis said famously, if you think you are humble, you are very conceited indeed. If we think we are spiritually okay, and you're sitting here today, you think I'm spiritually okay, you're very sick indeed, spiritually sick. Because Jesus said, the happy ones, the ones to congratulate, the ones who are in a good place, are those who feel desolate and a failure and broken and empty. Two men went to the temple to pray. Two men. You know, you know who they are. And one, of course, was the Pharisee, and he stood up the front, close to the presence of God. What was his posture? Head up. God, thank you. Thank you that I'm not like this other chap who we're going to hear about in a moment. Thank you that I fast. Thank you that I pray. Thank you that I tithe. Thank you that I am a good man. 
and the tax collector whose whole life has been a traitor to his own people and stealing their money and pocketing it and giving the rest to the Roman conquerors. And he stood at the back, head lowered. He beat his breasts. And all he could say was, God, be merciful. That's all he could say. God, be merciful to me. Not a sinner, but the sinner, is what he said. As though, of all the people in the world, God, surely I'm the worst. Surely my heart is more sinful than anyone else's. Paul said the same thing later in his second to last letter. I'm the chief of sinners, he said. Jesus said, it wasn't that man, it was that man who went home justified. It's not the man who thought he was good, who thought he had it together, spiritually healthy. Thank you, God. He didn't go home justified. It was that man, the broken man, the man who had nothing to give to God but his sin. That man went home justified. And Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, holds the mirror up to me and to you and says, can't you see yourself there? Can't you see yourself in the Pharisees? Can't you see your hypocrisy and your giving and your prayer, fasting if you fast? And aren't you just as consumed with the love for money as the Pharisees? Well, yes, I am. And so I have to come to Jesus. What are the words of the old hymn? Foul, I to the fountain fly. What words to sing? How hard that is to sing with real meaning. I look at myself and I'm foul. And I go foul. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. You're the only one who can clean me and make me right and take away my sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, we, we thank you for humbling us and forgive us our arrogance and our pride. Strip it away. It's foolish and wicked. Strip off the filthy rags, Lord Jesus. Clothe us with the clean robe of your righteousness. Clean us. Forgive that long record of sin. Give us a new heart. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Change us, Jesus. Equip us for the daily fight ahead. And most of all, help us to be on guard against the satanic temptation of spiritual pride. Amen.